This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to be joined by a distinguished guest, Peter M. Robinson. Peter M. Robinson is the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he writes about business and politics, edits Hoover's quarterly journal, the Hoover Digest, and hosts Hoover's video series program, Uncommon Knowledge. You can find this on Hoover Institution's site at hoover.org or visit YouTube. Mr. Robinson is also the author of three books, How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life, It's My Party, A Republican's Messy Love Affair with the GOP, and the best-selling book, Snapshots from Hell, The Making of an MBA. Robinson spent six years in the White House serving from 1982 to 1983 as the chief speechwriter to Vice President George Bush and from 1983 to 1988 as special assistant and speechwriter to President Ronald Reagan. And on this note, we extend to Peter Robinson a warm welcome. Hello, Peter, and welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Peter. Joel and Natasha, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I noticed that you used the word distinguished twice in introducing me, Joel. That's, <laughs> yes, it's, been a, it's been a long time since anybody used it once. Well, it is thank a you. most deserving title indeed. Well, uh, Peter, this past week, our trusted allies in Europe and friends across America took time to reflect on the 33rd anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I remember those images of a wall that was constructed after the Second World War and stood as separation between West Berlin and the East German territory under the control of the Soviet Union. And this past week in Berlin, people lit candles during a ceremony to mark the anniversary. I recall the images on the television of the Berlin Wall falling. I lived in the communist Yugoslavia at that time, and I remember the optimism for freedom and a better future on the horizon. It was for us a new dawn in Eastern Europe and beyond. Peter, many Americans and Europeans also remember another historic date in the calendar that is connected to Berlin, and that date is June 12. 1987. You were with President Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate, standing just 100 yards away from the concrete barrier dividing East and West Berlin. Uh, Peter, you wrote the historic Berlin Wall Address, in which President Reagan called on General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. And uh, let us take a brief listen.
Uh, Peter, today, that profound sentence, tear down this wall, is carved on actual walls and will perhaps be known as one of the defining statements of the Cold War era that inspired millions of people in Eastern Europe and the West. It gave millions hope that freedom was near. Could you kindly take us through this journey of your advanced trip to Germany, how you came to the point of writing those words and the opposition that you and President Reagan encountered along the way with that specific historic statement. Sure. I was assigned the speech in April of 1987. He delivered that speech on June 12, 1987. I was assigned the speech in April. I was told where he would deliver the speech, that he would speak for about half an hour, and that there would be an audience of between 10 and 40,000 people in the open plaza in front of the uh, lectern. Turned out it was on the high end. It turned out to be, have been about 40,000 people. So I flew to West Berlin, as we called it in those days. Berlin didn't exist. It was either West Berlin or East Berlin. And I flew to West Berlin with the American Advance Party, and in the course of a day made four stops. One was to the site where the president would speak, right at the Berlin Wall. I climbed up the observation platform and looked over the Berlin Wall into East Berlin. We're talking about events. You'll have a lot of listeners who hadn't been born yet when these events took place. So it's important to remind listeners, I think, that West Berlin lay over 100 miles inside East Germany. And the Berlin Wall surrounded West Berlin, which was part of West Germany. It was a free democratic enclave, so to speak, inside East Germany. And the wall went up in the first place in 1960 because East Germans were escaping communism by walking into or taking the subway into West Berlin from which they could hop on a train and cross East German territory to West Germany and freedom. And by the time the wall went up, about one in five East Germans had left the country. It was that clear to them that conditions under communism were miserable and conditions in the West involved freedom, economic growth, and so forth. All right, so they put up this wall, and I looked over the wall into East Germany, East Berlin, and it's very difficult to convey. It's gone now, of course. It's very difficult to convey, although Natasha will know, having grown up in, in Yugoslavia in the old days, the absence of color, hmm. motion, very few people, people seemed to be walking more slowly. They didn't seem to have any place to go. The soldiers outnumbered the pedestrians. Very little automobile traffic, whereas right behind me in West Berlin, color, motion, goods in department stores, recent model Mercedes Benzes whizzing around. You're in a modern Western city and you looked over the wall and just saw, you could actually feel, this is what's hard to convey, but you could feel a sense of oppression. It was like a weight. So I thought, what on earth do I write for the president that is equal to the gravity of this place? Next stop, to the ranking American diplomat in Berlin who was full of ideas about what Ronald Reagan should not say. <laughs> uh, we're deep inside East Germany. People of West Berlin understand the importance of nuance and subtlety in East-West relations. Don't have the president sound like some sort of crude anti-communist cowboy, and don't make a big deal out of the wall because they've gotten used to it by now. Then, up in the air in a U.S. Army helicopter to fly over the wall, 
And from the air, it looked even worse than it did from inside West Berlin. Inside West Berlin, you had you see these 13-foot-tall slabs of concrete, but from the air, you could see what was on the other side. And what was on the other side were dog runs and barbed wire, soldiers in guard towers. It looked like one vast penitentiary. Final event, in the evening, I broke away from the American party, advance party, climbed into a taxi in downtown West Berlin and drove out to a residential suburb where some Berliners had offered to put on a dinner party for me just so I could meet some, some Germans. The host and hostess, Dieter and Ingeborg Eltz, who Dieter just died a couple of years ago. His wife died a few years before that. We'd never met, but he had had a career at the World Bank in Washington. We had friends in common, and through those friends in common, they extended this invitation. All right, I show up. I think it was 15, 18 guests. There was a physician, an economist, a couple of students, and um, we chatted. And then I said, I've been told that you've gotten used to the wall. But I flew over it, and it seems it was thought it would be very hard to get used to that. Is it true? Have you gotten used to the wall? And there was a silence. And I, at first, I thought I had committed some kind of gaffe. I had done just what the diplomat wanted to make sure Ronald Reagan did not do. And then one man pointed and said, my sister lives a few kilometers in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about that wall? Well, they went around the room talking about the wall. They may have stopped talking about it, but if you asked, they hadn't gotten used to it. They hated it every single day. And our hostess, Ingeborg Eltz, became quite angry, agitated. And she said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost, perestroika, if he's serious, he can prove it. He can come here and open up this wall. So that, all day long, I'd been tortured by the thought of, what can I give Ronald Reagan to say that, that has some force that's truthful and that's equal to the setting? And there it was, right there. I just knew immediately that if he'd been there in my place, he would have responded to, to that remark, to the decency and, and the power of that remark. All right, back to the White House. There's a long story, as there always is with a speech, but fundamentally, I wrote the speech around the call to tear down the wall, sent it to the president. We had a meeting with him, and in that meeting, I said I had learned in West Berlin that people would be able to listen to him in East Germany, and if the weather conditions were just right, they'd be able to pick him up by radio as far east as Moscow. Mr. President, is there anything you especially want to say to people in, in the east, on the communist side of the wall? And Ronald Reagan said, well... There's that passage about tearing down the wall. That's what I want to say to them. That wall has to come down. Then the speech went out to staffing, and it was three weeks, three weeks and a day or so between the moment the speech went out to staffing and the, the day the president delivered it. And for all three weeks, the State Department and the National Security Council fought it. They said it would raise false expectations. It sounded unpresidential. It might put Gorbachev in a difficult spot in the Kremlin. On and on it went. They submitted alternative drafts. I counted seven alternative drafts, each one omitting the line to tear down the wall. Now, I was not with him. I did not go to Europe, but the traveling party departed. And so I was part of the fight. I refused to back down. I was that piece of the fight when it was taking place in the White House. Afterwards, friends were calling me to tell me what was happening. So before going to Berlin, the president was going to an economic summit in Italy. 
And the deputy chief of staff felt he had no choice. The fight didn't die down. Fights over speeches usually did die down. This one didn't. So the deputy chief of staff sat the president down in the garden of some palazzo in Italy and went over the arguments against the speech. And they talked about it. And Ronald Reagan said, now, I'm the president, aren't I? Yes, sir. We're, we're clear on that. So I get to decide if that line stays in? Yes, sir. It's your decision. Well, then, it stays in. The morning the president left Italy to fly to West Berlin, the State Department submitted another alternative draft. This is in Air Force One now. And this time, the president just ignored it. And in the limousine in West Berlin, on the way to the wall to deliver the speech, the president leaned across the limousine and slapped Ken Duberstein, the deputy chief of staff, on the knee and said, the boys at state are going to kill me for this, but it's the right thing to do. And a few moments later, he delivered the address. So there you have Ronald Reagan doing the right thing. Absolutely. And that was such a profound statement, a profound speech that I think not only inspired people in Eastern Europe or in the West, but also across Asia. I remember hearing from some of our relatives in India of how that very speech inspired people about the importance of freedom. Really? That's interesting. And very few American presidents, or for that matter, world leaders, have clearly articulated moral clarity. America, as you rightfully pointed out, was in the midst of the Cold War, freedom and the rule of law versus free markets, and a totalitarian system led by communists. And we recall that speech that he delivered in 1983 whereby President Reagan spoke to the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida, mm -hmm. and branded mm -hmm. the Soviet Union an evil empire. And mm -hmm. it got a lot of attention. And I'd just like to read that. The staff thought that one, too. That's very true. <laughs> they did. They did. That was a huge fight inside the White House over that speech. Absolutely. And so I'd just like to relay those few sentences, and I quote, So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposal, I urge you to be aware of the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all, and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong, and good and evil, unquote. Peter, the term evil empire, as you rightfully mentioned, got a lot of attention. And from your vantage point, what did you observe firsthand when hearing President Reagan present moral clarity to the great challenges of the day? And what are the lessons that we can learn uh, from his expressing that moral clarity guided by clear values and principles? Moral clarity turns out to be difficult. It makes a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. The person who wrote the speech you just quoted, Joel, was Tony Dolan, another of Reagan's speechwriters, my boss, the one who assigned me to write the Berlin Wall Address. Tony also wrote the Westminster Address of June 1982, in which Ronald Reagan, that was in some ways the most important opening address in Reagan's approach to the Cold War. That was when he described the economic weakness of the Soviet Union and said that Marxism-Leninism would end up on the ash heap of history. Trotsky said capitalism would end up on the ash heap of history. Reagan turned it around. Tony wrote that speech. The staff fought that speech. In 1983, the draft said that the Soviet Union represented the locus of evil in the modern world, and the White House staff, 
Ronald Reagan's own White House staff fought that speech. 1987, Berlin Wall Address, tear down this wall, they fought that speech. What I'm trying to point out here is that, or what I, I want to note here is that almost anybody else, George Bush was a wonderful man. He was a fine vice president, a fine president. But when I wrote a speech, as he was then Vice President Bush on foreign policy, the first thing he said was, have you cleared this with state? And Ronald Reagan, he cared what the State Department said, but he cared most about stating the truth, that moral imagination, the sense that underlying all of this is a great struggle. And we have to be very, very careful not to be sanctimonious. We have to be very, very careful to see our own faults. But it was then, in all kinds of ways, it remains today, at some deep, deep level, good versus evil, life versus death, freedom and respect for the dignity of human beings versus seeing human beings as simply some kind of cogs in some great social or national project, which is the way the Chinese Communist Party sees its own people. That remains permanently true. The 80s were, in my opinion, a kind of magical, it wasn't magic, it was more than magic. They represented a decade of consequence, a decade when events moved, the world changed, largely because Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, Václav Havel, Ronald Reagan, John Paul II, you had a number of figures who just would not be cowed, who just insisted on telling the truth, did so with grace and dignity. They weren't hectoring people, but they insisted on telling the truth. So as a practical note, the two days after a very, to me, very disappointing election, that's the one, the one practical note. Listen to candidates speak. Who seems to have courage? Mm -hmm. Who's willing to tell the truth? That's, that, that may be the lesson for us. Indeed. Mm. Well stated. Mm. Indeed, Peter. Right. Um, Peter, going back to Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a result of the unfinished work after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And I think that we missed an opportunity. With the breakup of Soviet Union, Eastern European countries, once governed by communist parties and under a strong influence by Russia, were on the path to transition from communism to democratic states with a market economy. And we all anticipated that, we all projected that. And the problem arose, which a Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman, one of the founding partners of the International Leaders Summit, shared with us. Uh, Joel and I met with Dr. Milton Friedman and Rose Friedman at their residence in San Francisco in 2003. Oh, you did? Yes, on the eve of launching the International Leaders Summit in Eastern Europe. Mm. And Dr. Friedman acknowledged that instead of insisting on to privatize, 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 we should have established the rule of law first. So what happened is that without establishing the rule of law and protection of property rights, corrupt government officials privatized state-owned assets in much of Eastern Europe by giving away national wealth of these countries to their private partners in crime. Due to its vast natural resources, this process was most pronounced in Russia, where oligarchs became owners of massive natural resources, which were previously state-owned assets. A former KGB senior official and authoritarian, Vladimir Putin, 
has required and maintained loyalty of these oligarchs for decades and extended his own influence over other authoritarian and kleptocratic regimes in Eastern Europe through business partnerships spearheaded by oligarchs. Peter, from today's perspective, what are your thoughts about what, if anything, could have been done differently in Eastern Europe, and particularly in Russia, that could have prevented the kleptocracy and its export from Russia into the rest of the world, including preventing the current Russian war against Ukraine? I'm not a Soviet expert, or Lord knows a Russian expert. I mean, my knowledge extends as far as having read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Your question is, what should we have done? I think I can see two things we should have done. How to have done them, I cannot tell you, because neither one is easy. And of course, Milton Friedman was correct, rule of law. An independent judiciary and a body of law that understood property rights, real Mm. estate law, mining rights, mineral rights. These things are complicated, but just completely necessary to permit people. I mean, good Lord, you have seven decades of communism. And before that, the greater part of the population is is taken up in agriculture on vast estates, many of them serfs, or by then the grandchildren, I suppose, of serfs. There's just nothing in the background of most Russians that would give them any reason to trust economic enterprises, let alone to understand how you can buy shares or begin to establish retirement accounts. Somehow or other, that kind of hard work of establishing property rights and an independent judiciary needed to happen. How? I'm not an expert. The other piece that doesn't receive much comment, I don't think, and that may seem counterintuitive after all that we've just been through in this country with this last election season. Political parties. In Russia, you have this long tradition of the person of the czar representing, standing for the state, standing for the entire political life of the nation. And then that gets supplanted by one party, the Communist Party, which makes other political activity illegal for seven decades, and again carries on in the tradition of the cult of personality, particularly, of course, with Stalin. But even Brezhnev, his poster is all over Moscow in the old days. And it's easy, too easy, for that to continue in the person of Vladimir Putin when there are no political parties. Where does the opposition find its ground? Where does it place its feet? For all that we complain about the Democratic and Republican parties in this country, we can see the great struggle that's now going to take place in the Republican Party. Half the party wants to get rid of Donald Trump. The other half says we have to keep Donald But underlying all of this, and we tend to focus on the wrangling and bitterness and so forth, but underlying all of this is this entity of the Republican Party which has endured since it was founded in 1856, as I recall, and the Democratic Party, which can trace its lineage farther back even than that. And this represents a forum where these disputes can take place, where ideas can get tested, and that can present candidates for office and give them the kind of support that they need. No such parties exist in Russia. So if you want to oppose Vladimir Putin, how do you do it? It's very hard except to stand up as a 
person to is try to establish your own personal party, which you have to make up from scratch. That's difficult. And then you represent a personal target. Putin tosses you in jail and your whole movement collapses. Again, I don't know quite how it could have been done, but political parties can, and in many, most cases in Western Europe, and certainly in this country, certainly in Canada, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, the political parties add a certain stability. They're not sources of instability. They're sources of stability and platforms from which opposition can gather itself, think through agendas, and rise to challenge the sitting power. So I would have wished for Russia to have developed, to have had a kind of breathing space during which it could, could have developed political parties. There, that's another epic ant. That's almost as long as War and Peace, my answer. Peter, Natasha and I have appreciated Uncommon Knowledge, Hoover's video series that you launched a number of years ago. And whenever it comes out- A large out, number of years ago. <laughs> a big <laughs> double digit number of years ago. Yes, indeed. Getting well, to have been a while ago now. Absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. And, and we were drawn you know, to it because of the format, how you engage authors and leaders and those that are in the public square. And you engage them in such a way that it's enlightening and inspiring. And so- for our listeners that have, you know, probably have heard about your work, we would just encourage them to visit the uh, online uh, search engines and seek out an uncommon knowledge. And Peter, what is in store in the future programming or the lineup for Uncommon Knowledge? I'm holding up a book. You can see this cover. Your listeners can only hear it. This is a new book just written by Will Inboden, William Inboden of the University of Texas. It is a new study of Ronald Reagan and the Cold War. And as far as I can tell, I haven't quite finished it yet, but I'm going to be doing an interview with Dr. Inboden about this book. And as far as I can tell, here is the distinguishing feature of this book. The book is entitled The Peacemaker, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. The distinguishing feature of this book is that it gets Ronald Reagan right. This book is a serious study that does him and his policy agenda justice. So that's one thing. I haven't shot the show yet, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but Will Inboden has agreed in principle, en principe, as the French say, to appear. So we have to set a date and get that sorted out. But I wanted to mention this book because of, we've been discussing Reagan and the end of the Cold War, and this brand new book, The Peacemaker, looks as though it does the man justice, gets the policy understands that there was a policy. He's accused, I don't know, in some ways he was almost too good a speaker because he's accused of having nothing but words. There were policies as well. We looked at one of your interviews and in your intriguing interview on common knowledge with Harvey Mansfield, a Harvard professor and author who also translated and edited the standard edition of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, published in 2000. You posed one of the most relevant questions of today, and that is... Do our underlying social institutions remain healthy enough to support self-government? From Alexis de Tocqueville's observations about democracy in America, you brought up the importance of religion and family and the importance of religious faith as a prerequisite for freedom. Peter, could you kindly share with us your thoughts about these social institutions? Where do we stand today? And what needs to happen to strengthen them? Hmm. Well, I can tell you what needs to happen. Prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. That's about all I can offer. Um, you I'd forgotten that, that. We did that interview. It's a strange feature of these interviews. I don't know whether it's true of you. Maybe it is. 
But for me, conducting an interview is almost like, I, I, I think back to when I was in high school and playing soccer or in a track meet. It's a very intense experience at the time. And the moment it's over, it's very difficult to recall. <laughs> There's a strange thing about doing these interviews. I have almost no memory of them. If I want to know what an interview was like, I have to look it up on YouTube myself. Anyway, so, uh, but that sounded like a pretty good question. If I, if I put it as well as you did just now, Natasha, I'm going to pat myself on the back. We know that all the great thinkers who've considered the matter argue that some form of religious belief is important to virtue. Behaving ourselves, telling the truth, conducting ourselves with a certain basic dignity and humility. And that, de Tocqueville argued this, George Washington argued it, Lincoln argued it, virtue is essential for the functioning of democracy. All right. And here's the problem. Just look at the statistics. It's measured in a number of different ways, but religious belief is declining and religious practice has all but collapsed. I checked this the other day. The number, the proportion of Americans who went to church or synagogue once a week back in 1980, the year Ronald Reagan was elected, was two out of five. Two out of five Americans were in church or synagogue every week. Now, what, of course, that implies is that there were a lot more who'd show up once a month or at least would get there during the holidays. That suggests a pretty base-level religious belief. Today, that proportion is one in five. It's fallen by half. Mm. So, I can sketch out the problem. How do we… I mean… <sighs> Those of us who are believers believe that there is a God and that that is a, that is, a, is this Aquinas? I think this is Aquinas. I can't remember the Latin, but that, that the Creator is the ground of all being. It's what we stand on. It's the most basic reality of all. Now, either we're right or we're wrong. And if we're right and we believe that reality asserts itself over time, that we can wander or we can delude ourselves, but only for a certain amount of time. It's a kind of related notion to Lincoln's famous phrase that you can fool all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. Well, then if we're right that it is real, then, then people will find their way back. The trouble is all the nonsense and difficulty you have to go through in the meantime. <laughs> and I don't know what to do about it. I, I truly don't. I just plain don't. Aside from, I was being flippant, but not flippant really. People who are believers do have the recourse of prayer. I keep saying fasting because it's recommended in the Bible. Lord, I find it difficult to sk skip a meal myself. Anyway, that's. I, I wish I had a more satisfying answer. It's a. I feel certain that it's a major problem. I feel very uncertain that I have the slightest idea what to do about it. Mm -hmm. and, and really appreciate your candid response to that, because we all see that erosion of Judeo-Christian principles in our public square. Yes. Uh, the efforts that are being undertaken under the broad umbrella of wokeism. So when there is a discussion about our sacred values and principles and traditions, if that is removed, I think Natasha would express that 
That's what communism yeah, did. Yeah, they wanted yeah. to drive out religion yes. uh, from yes. the public square, from the schools. Right, because they can't be any supreme body but government. So the first thing they yes, have to abolish yes, yes. is religion and just, you know, cancel and penalize them. I remember having having a conversation. This is on this this I think made it into my interview with him with um, Nathan Sharansky. Oh. Right. Now he Nathan Sharansky, who spent six years in, in a Gulag. Soviet prison. Yeah. And he said the distinguishing feature of Soviet life, now he was a young man in the 70s, so this is late era Soviet life, Brezhnev era, where everything is rotten and corrupt. The distinguishing feature is that everyone lives two lives. Mm. In public, you kowtow to all the lies. You repeat lies in school, you remain silent when people say things that you know are untrue and that, and that they know you know are untrue and that you know they know are untrue. That's the nature of communism. Mm -hmm. And then you lead a secret inner life, if you're lucky, at home with your family. But only your most immediate family. Only There can only be a very, very few people whom you trust. So, Sharansky said that when Stalin died, his father was jubilant and explained to, to Nathan Sharansky that, a, that this was good for the people of the Soviet Union and particularly good for the Jews, that Stalin was dead. He was a horrible man in all kinds of ways and, and anti-Semitic. But, his father said, when you go to school, you weep with all the other children. Mm. You pretend that it was a, I mean, what a horrible, now what are we being told in this country? That man is a woman, mm. and you're not allowed to say otherwise. You're not allowed to say otherwise. You'll be canceled. You'll lose your job. You submit to the lie. Well, that's a lot closer to the Soviet Union in the old days than I'd like it to be. Mm. Right? Mm. Absolutely. Yes. And your final thought on a optimistic message for all listeners and yes trying to pull out of this emotional nosedive how to bring, <laughs> how to how to how to land this how to land this discussion on a high note um what is there to say democracy is very very messy and i was just so distraught by the results of this election this last election which i like everybody else was expecting some a kind of red wave well it didn't happen but a few things did happen, and of, I think I personally, let's see if I had to single out one, there are a number of things that were fascinating about this election, but who won especially big? Ron DeSantis mm. of Florida. Mm. That's right. What is he doing as governor of Florida? He's standing up to the woke orthodoxy. He's saying, not in our schools. Mm. He's saying the, to the misuse of scientific information to shut down the economy and close schools and he's saying not in our state we will go by the real science we will debate the science i'll hire public officials who can make their own decisions and won't kowtow to the cdc so there is someone who stood up i'm sure all kinds of listeners will say well yeah but DeSantis did this wrong and that of course he did he's human but i think the fundamental point there is that he pushed back mm. against this 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 new this weird new establishment orthodoxy 
which has its own bizarre set of lies that it insists we submit to. And Ron DeSantis said, no, nothing doing. And he won by almost 20 points. So there are, there are hope, there's a hopeful note. How's that? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and, and as you've mentioned, I was just reflecting on the fact that I recall when President Reagan, when he was governor of California, and, and he implemented all the right reforms and did the right thing, and he inspired us all. And I think that image, that example of Reagan is so relevant for today that we all need to fight for those freedoms in our daily lives to continue that. And we thank you so much for being with us, Peter. I know that we've taken a bit longer of the time than anticipated, no. and I really appreciate that. Only because my answers are so long. <laughs> no, we truly enjoyed them. In concluding our program, I would like to share the entire quote from Ronald Reagan. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. True. Always true. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we were joined by distinguished guest Peter M. Robinson. He's the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And we would encourage our friends and listeners to seek out this great video series program, Uncommon Knowledge. Please subscribe to this program and share it with your friends and neighbors. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on America's Roundtable. Wishing you a great weekend. Thank you, Peter. Natasha and Joel, thank you. My pleasure. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan Ansami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable.